Hello and welcome to Series 2, Episode 16 of Out with Susie Ruffle. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. I hope that whenever you're listening to this, you're doing well. Um, I've had a good week. I've had quite an exciting week uh, personally. Very busy, uh, which is great, which I loved. And um, I'm very excited to be talking to you now. I'm recording this on Saturday evening. Um, I've got a little glass of wine in front of me and um, my delivery has just arrived, which I'm very excited about. Uh, But I thought I'd do this now because I haven't got time in the morning. And it's very important to me that I get these little top and tails in at the beginning of the episode, mainly to do the stories uh, that people send in, but also to thank the people that have got in touch from the previous week's episode or anyone that ever gets in touch, really. I, was, um, I wasn't surprised by how many of you got in touch after Jen Brister's episode last week. Uh, she's absolutely brilliant and she's someone that a lot of you had asked for and I knew that I'd have Jen on at some point or another. She's such a good friend of mine. And as I mentioned on the episode, you know, her stand-up has always really inspired me. If you haven't seen her stand-up, or even if you have, a show of hers called Meaningless has just gone on Amazon Prime and it's really good. It was recorded at the Soho Theatre and I, I really strongly advise you all to watch it. So maybe go and have a watch of that. Uh, but thanks so much to all of you that got in touch. If you ever want to get in touch with me, please do. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Uh, as ever, before I get to the interview, I've got some listener emails to share. Um, and I was delighted to receive this one from Sean. And you'll see why in a second. Hi, Susie. I've been listening to your podcast over recent weeks and it has inspired me and made me cry. I love the range of guests, including ones I was otherwise unfamiliar with. I'm a gay man in his 50s who grew up in a military town and went to a Catholic school until 11 years old before going to an army council comprehensive. I think that growing up in post-punk 80s was in some ways a very positive thing. It's still one of the greatest, most diverse periods in music and fashion, but also a time of advancing political and social attitudes. I did experience homophobia, but also great support from people I met. I came out at school in class after being attacked at lunchtime. Lots of people already called me names because I insisted on wearing makeup to school and everywhere else. But once I came out, my friends were largely supportive. I met some great friends and went to some brilliant places, many now closed. At 15, I visited Soho and some exclusive places. I went to heaven when Freddie Mercury and Kenny Everett would attend. Amazing. I saw Eartha Kitt fall off a stage and had a New Year's Eve party where they served breakfast buffet in the alley outside. I know that alley outside of heaven and I would love for someone to give me a breakfast buffet as I was leaving. I attended an early Comunards gig buying the tickets from the Gaze the Word bookshop. I also met some brilliant people in London and even went to Pride in 1985. See the movie Pride. Um, Sorry, this is Susie, not Sean. Um, If you haven't seen the film Pride, oh my God, watch it. And And then think, Sean was there. Sean who wrote in was there. How incredible. I was 16 then. Now age 51, I still find myself coming out at times when I meet new people, and it's not always the case that I'm not worried what people think. I'm glad things have improved in so many ways, but equally I hope people continue to learn about our history, lest we repeat it. We must celebrate Alan Turing, Wilfred Owen and the events of Stonewall, as well as our Susie's, Alan Carr's and Todrick Halls. So thanks again for the podcast and good luck with everything ahead. I've attached some photos of Pride to make you smile. I'm the one in the canary yellow v-neck waving. 35 years ago, what excellent days. 
Oh, Sean, I was so delighted to receive your message. Um, mainly because it's because of people like you who marched all those years before me that mean I can do what I do now, that I can stand on stage and be an out gay woman and that I can do this podcast about coming out. It's only because of people like you who marched before me. So, oh, I'm getting a bit emotional. So it really meant a lot that you listen and uh, that you sent me those lovely photos. Uh, They were great to see. And I know that I can't share them because there's people's images and stuff, but it was really lovely to see some pictures of Pride 1985. And I'm so pleased that this podcast resonates with you and your email made my day. So thank you so much for getting in touch. Okay, let's have one more before we get into today's interview. Hi Susie, I felt compared to write to both congratulate you and thank you for such a wonderful podcast. I first saw you many years ago when you supported Alan Carr in our small local theatre and have since enjoyed your own stand-up and your own tours. In fact, our last outing was coming to see you in Bristol. Who would have known that could have been our last night out of the year? Oh, I remember that show in Bristol. It was really special, but I'd just done my back in, so I think I had a did I, I might have had a walking stick on stage or if not I was a lot less physical but yeah that was one of the last tour shows and oh it was a really special one I can't wait to go back to that theatre okay back to the email for me the podcasts have been fascinating I've enjoyed listening to the guests and have learnt loads and have been thoroughly entertained your interview style is so warm and honest and you really get the best out of your guests I can't say like some, that it's made my coming out story easier or made me accept myself for who I am, as thankfully that's all been pretty easy for me. But oh my goodness, how teary I've been hearing your listener stories. It really shows how powerful representation is and how being kind to others is really the most important thing. I couldn't agree more. I am what you call a late blooming lesbian. I was married to a man and had four children. After my marriage broke down when my twin boys were two years old and I was at a particularly low point, I had no interest in meeting anyone else but in time became extremely independent and happy. I rejoined some old hobbies and at one I met a person I've now been with for almost 10 years, Zoe. Zoe and I became friends. We would spend all of our time with one another and spend hours on the phone talking. Neither of us had been in a relationship with a woman before. We didn't really understand our feelings initially. We just knew we wanted to be together all of the time. Zoe is kind and funny and a good listener and pretty much has all the qualities you would want in a friend. As time went on, we became much closer and eventually had a conversation about how we felt. I plucked up the courage to ask the question if what we felt was simply love. A good friend said to me, love is simply where it falls. And I very much believe this to be true. Although we accepted that this was what it was, neither of us felt we could tell anyone else about our relationship. Obviously, some months went on and we realised that being ourselves, our true, authentic selves, was important. And gradually we told those that are close to us. Everyone was amazing, fully accepting and happy that we'd found one another. My children, twin girls, now 21, and twin boys, now 12, fully accepted Zoe into our lives and love having her as their stepmom. She really is the most wonderful mother. The way she encourages and helps and guides them is truly special. As far as our sexual orientation goes, we're still both a little unsure to how we would label ourselves if needing to do so. We just fell in love with one another. The LGBTQIA community has embraced us and us them. As a nurse in a large health board, I co-founded and now chair their LGBTQIA staff network and have become involved in various pieces of work surrounding sexuality and gender identity. Your last words in Bristol were asking the audience to support all of our community, particularly those who were and still are having a tough time. We cheered at this and we are doing our very best. I wish you well in 2021. Thanks for everything. Well, thank you so much, Emma, for getting in touch. Um, I'm reminding me, first of all, of that fun gig 
what, what a joyous time. Um, and I'm so pleased that you had fun. Thank you for supporting my career since I supported Alan on tour. Gosh, that was a long time ago. I really appreciate that. And I, your friend's so right. Love is simply where it falls. And I'm so pleased that you and Zoe found each other. It sounds like you have a very special life together. And thanks for doing that work in our community, co-founding and chair the LGBTQIA plus staff network. I'm sure that the work that you do doesn't go unnoticed and will be appreciated by so many people. Right, guys, now it's time for today's interview. Um, I'm really excited to share this week's episode. It's with Lucy Spragan, who I think is absolutely brilliant. Um, I loved chatting to her. She falls into the category of people that I don't know, but that I have decided I will make my friend now that I've interviewed them. She's absolutely lovely. We had a really great chat. And as I mentioned in the interview, seeing her on The X Factor all those years ago was a really important piece of representation for me, of thinking, oh, look, there's someone like me. And so it was great to talk to her about her experiences and talk to her about music and talk to her about what she's been up to. So, um, yeah, I hope that you really enjoy this. Well, I am very excited for today's conversation. Lucy Spragan shot to fame in 2012, smashing the X Factor audition by not only performing her brilliant song that she wrote, but also by totally being herself and being really funny. I distinctly remember sitting in a little flat that I was living in and tooting at the time, watching it. And as she walked on stage, I remember thinking, oh my God, someone like me. She was undeniably herself. And since then, she's had record deals and albums. She's had top 10. She's toured the world and created fans at home and abroad and even opened for Melissa Etheridge on tour. Uh, she's recently released a new song, Sober, which I love. I've been listening to it on repeat all week. And her new album, Choices, is released in February. Lucy is also a really positive role model, I think. And she's really funny on Instagram, which is obviously a massive tick for me. Welcome to the show, Lucy. What a lovely intro. Well, I only have people on the show that I genuinely want to talk to. So oh, That's really, some really nice things. So thank oh, well, you. Uh, and she's also got washboard abs. Oh, um, it's yeah. A bit like, <laughs> <laughs> which, Says uh, the Daily Mail every day. Friends that are listening to the show. Uh, and by friends, I mean literally anyone that's listening. Uh, before we started recording, I said to Lucy that she must be absolutely sick of the fact that the press are constantly talking about her washboard abs, uh, which we were joking about. So that's why that, that's why that little giggle. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm feeling all right. I'm kind of hating on the fact that lockdown two has been with all the bad weather. So yes. I'm not about that life. No, it's not as easy. And you're by the coast at the moment, you were saying. So you're sort of like looking out into the sea, sort of. Yes, yeah, very doomy. It's yes. very doomed. And I can imagine a ghost pirate ship sort of just coming towards me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, yeah, yeah, I just really don't like, yeah, I don't really like the vibe of, of November, December. And I, just can't wait for the sun to be back. Yeah. Do you find that you, your like mood dips at this time? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Me and really? my friends are having a lot of conversations about that. I think it's it's just something that literally everybody feels. So mm. and what about you? How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm in my uh, little, uh, I, I created a podcast studio during lockdown, which is basically a massive cupboard that my girlfriend let me have for my podcasting. Amazing. Um, so I'm coming, I'm coming live from the, the, the tiny red cupboard that I, that she makes me live in whilst I'm doing this. Um, but yeah, no, I'm fine. I'm sort of, I mean, I sort of feel like we might be in a similar situation because you tour constantly, right? Yeah. Like yeah. that's been your vibe for like nearly a decade. Yeah. 
And and so I'm the same. Like it's different where I'm, you know, for a long time I wasn't sort of uh, the headline act or anything, but I've I'm always on the road, you know, either doing nowadays doing my own stuff, but for a long time I would be the support act or I'd be on a mixed bill and just driving every week, you know, going to Bristol, Brighton, Birmingham and places that don't begin with B. And now I'm forced to stop. Oh, I feel that. How would you feel? How's it made you feel? At first I was like, oh, this will be fine. This will be fine. <laughs> I'm fine. I mean, I, like, I was like, I spend time at home, mm-hmm. don't I? And then <laughs> I, I was like, I literally was like, how does this remote control work for the TV? I do not ever bloody stay at home. So this mm. was actually huge. And it was like normal life is is so much different to life on the road. Yeah. And I didn't realise. I actually didn't realise how much I toured because um, you're probably the same. Like, your work is your life. Yes. It's your livelihood. It's like everything. So it doesn't – and we're lucky because in this industry, it's not really work, is it? It's no. Like, well, no, it's that thing where you've, like, you've managed to make, like, what could have been a hobby yeah. into your job. Yeah. And so I just never know when to stop because I'm like, well, another gig, that sounds nice, another show. Yeah, why not? Oh, people want to come. That's amazing. I'll do that. That's exactly the same as me because it's uh, it's addictive as well. Mm. And you don't you don't ever, I get FOMO. I get show FOMO. <laughs> My agent is like, you don't have to do every show, and I'm like, but I do. I do <laughs> have to do every show because what if what if I don't do that show and and it was amazing? I think yes. it, at first I thought this was all going to be fine, and then probably about three months in, I started thinking, oh, that. I I definitely just felt I was missing something. Mm. I've been feeling that. I was talking to a friend about that yesterday, sort of saying, oh, I really miss the rush of being on stage. Yeah. And yeah. and I miss the nerves because I think you get so used to being someone like, I think I've been nervous for about 12 years, like, because there's always been something like, oh God, I've got that TV thing. Oh God, I've got that. Oh God, that's live. And so I've just always got very used to sort of living in this state where I'm like, yeah, I'm always kind of nervous. Well, you get actual drugs from it, but I mean like adrenaline and totally like the reward drugs, the dopamine, and mm-hmm. when people are clapping or or laughing, and you're like, oh my god, this is this is awesome. Yeah, you actually, if you don't have that, you're like, what what do I do? Yeah, like how do I fill my time? How much TV is normal to watch? <laughs> exactly. And before, when you were like, you know, I've been listening to you this week, and I was like, oh god, yeah, music. I do music. <laughs> Because I've had to completely throw myself into other things. And when I say other things, I've had to completely bury my head into fitness mm-hmm. because if I hadn't, I don't I don't really know where I would be mentally right now. I have found, yeah, go people that listen to the pod know I love I like my CrossFit um and running a bit. I'm not that good at it. I just sort of stop quite a lot, but I, I will go outside and pretend to run. But yeah, I think that if I didn't have my gym, like now I'm doing classes on Zoom, but if I didn't have like big weights to pick up and put down, I don't know what I don't know what I, what I would have done for the last six months. I think it just keeps my equilibrium. Yeah. And makes you feel like there was at least one success that day. Like mm. I did my workout and to me I'm like I got out of bed. <laughs> yeah. And people keep saying, What motivates you to to work out every day or sometimes twice a day because that's all I've got to do. Yeah. Have you been writing? Yeah, I've I've been writing a bit, but I find it really difficult at the moment. Well, I've I've got an album coming out, so I'm kind of overwhelmed by 
the the process of releasing singles and I'm quite heavily involved with or like that that across the board mm-hmm. so I so that's a tough thing to have to do and write at the same time but the other thing that I'm really cautious about is that there are going to be a hundred million singers out there writing about their experience of this horrendous lockdown time mm-hmm. and I think it's Bon Jovi has put out a lot. He put out a song at the beginning of lockdown that was like, people come together. And this is not quoting the lyrics or anything. No. But it's like, we can be better people if we just love each other. And it's like, actually, no, Bon. People <laughs> are fucking dying. And people who work for the NHS are not being given PPE. I know he's not British, but like... No, I know what you mean, though. And I don't it- want to be this wanker who writes like, uh... I've had to work out in my home gym <laughs> and I'm so sad because I've had a sustainable income and I yeah. saved some do you know what I mean like nah people have it really tough and I don't want to write about my yeah I don't know no I totally get that I think that makes sense and I also think you can only really write about what you're well for me I don't know what's right to write music but you've got to be in that place in order to I have to be in that place in order to write something funny something yeah. has to actually have happened that's yeah. got to be the catalyst for me to write and oh I can't even imagine being a comedian because you're gonna have to compete with all the other COVID jokes uh do you know what there'll probably be very few COVID jokes be like that was sad and awful um (laughs) so here's some other thoughts so here's me I'm gay joke 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 (laughs) let's go back a bit then so have you always been like how old were you when you like picked up a guitar I was 10 when I started playing the guitar and Mm -hmm. I was 12 when I wrote my first song Wow, that's super young. Yeah, it was shit. Um, <laughs> it wasn't actually. It was all right, but uh, I, I've always I've always written songs. And have you always been like a performer? Yeah, for my sins. Mm-hmm. I've actually I've got ADHD, and from when I was very very young, I think for me the way that I would express the the way I learned to express myself properly was performing. Mm-hmm. Before I was a musician, well, during actually, I was a magician. Huh, really? Yeah. Like I used to, I used to do events at this hotel. Um, when I was really quite young, because I was really quite good at it. I was called Magic Lucy. I'm like, come on, where's your creativity? <laughs> a bit better. But it's always been just like, look at me, look at me. And were you the same at school? Do you think? Oh yeah, I was. I was off. I actually sent an email to my school about six years ago just saying, sorry about me. I really hope you can <laughs> forgive me. So was it because you wanted sort of reassurance that you were funny or that you were, that everyone sort of liked you? I moved from Canterbury in Kent to Buxton in Derbyshire mm-hmm. when I was 11. So I right. joined in year six, which Ooh, is... Oh, that's tough. Yeah, it's like, I kind of look at it now and think, I probably wouldn't do that to my children, mum, thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I kind of look at it and think that. I, I can see where my identity, I had some real identity issues. I was naughty before that, don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. I had some real issues with that transition. And and I sound semi-northern now. Well, I sound very northern most of the time. <laughs> but my brother and sister are southern. Right. And, and so I just was this comedian, like, bam, just went straight to becoming whoever I thought I, I needed to be. And I think that's where my performing really came from. And was that when you were asking people to call you Max? 
No, that was before that. I was That max- was when you were really little. Yeah, I was max from like as soon as I was really consciously out of toddlerhood to maybe nine or ten. That you just wanted to pretend was, to be a boy. I was a boy. Right. In my mind, I was a boy. I remember we went on holiday to America and I was given some dollars and I, we walked past the homeless man and I gave him all of my dollars and he said, thank you, sir. And I remember that that like filled my heart with so much joy that I'd passed right. as Max. like, And I really remember that very vividly. And I was very young. Um, but yeah, no, I was, I was a boy for my youth. I, was a bo- I wasn't a tomboy, I was a boy. And when did that change then? I started getting little boobies when I was about 11, I think, maybe a little bit younger. And my mum was like, listen, if you want to be Max for the rest of your life, we need to kind of make that decision soonish before you um, before you start, you know, changing. Your body's going to change. Yeah. So, and I, I really respect her for that, that kind of chat, actually. Your mum sounds amazing. Oh, she's ledge. I've been I've really asked because about your mum. <laughs> She's that... I always feel like the way she treated me as a kid, I never was forced to wear a dress. And no one was ever like, You're a girl. It just wasn't like that. Mm. Her best friend was trans when we were growing up, so I feel like trans people are quite new to trans people, I think, mm. in society. But we we grew up mum took us to Pride when we were babies. Like amazing. That is amazing. And there was there was a Guardian article that your mum wrote, I think, and she was saying that you wanted to write a Valentine's card to another girl when you were seven, and she, like, rang the, the little girl's mum up to check that that was okay. She just sounds brilliant. What I love most about that story is that um, the little girl's mum, she was called Ella. I was in love with her for, like, years, this girl. <laughs> and um, her mum shouted at my mum. She said, how dare you, how dare you ring me? And, and ask if that's okay. She's like, of course it's okay. They've been friends for years. And I just, because so my mum created a space where it was, that was normal. That I was mm. like, I was a little girl, but I was, I was a little boy and, and everybody knew that. And my mum created that space. So that's, I have a lot of respect for her for that. And she said that having a gay child makes her feel like she's part of a special club. Oh, she loves Which it. I just love. She I love is. that. <laughs> She's like, you know, if there's gay men in the room, she's like, hi, guys. <laughs> I've got a gay daughter. And if there's a lesbian, she bloody flirts with them. I'm like, mum, excuse you. <laughs> I remember my mum going, my mum went on holiday with her friends to like Tenerife or somewhere and they went to a drag night. And she said, oh, the boy was really lovely that was doing the drag. And I went up to him. I said, my daughter's a comedian and she's a lesbian, so I get it. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> Thank you. I think Brilliant. that should be on a t-shirt. You should get that on a t-shirt. Yeah, so I get it. I so I get it. Um, it's adorable. So you moved to Buxton. You're about eleven. You were sort of showing off a bit in order to maybe make friends. Yeah. Well, that's why I learned magic. I was like, how do people become cool? Uh, <laughs> and you thought magic. I had some issues. Like, <laughs> I know. I'll get a wallet that sets on fire when I open it. That's that my is- plan. I mean, in fairness, if I was also 11, I would be like, huh, this Lucy girl's very cool. To be so, fair, did work, did work. Yeah, it would have worked. I would have been delighted. <laughs> and so, because I know you were performing a lot. Obviously, we're going to have to cover the X Factor at some point. Mm-hmm. But you were performing, like, your career was way before that. Were you performing as a teenager and 
like writing your own stuff? I played my first show when I was 12. Um, there was an acoustic night at my local pub. Well, it was my friend's mum's pub. So we would go there and there was like these old men drinking bitter, playing their <laughs> guitars, like playing old songs. And we'd sit there and wait for our turn and like learn all the etiquette of it, of, of that old school acoustic night music thing. And there was this man there called Chris Rockcliffe who heard me sing and was just like, wow. He was like, my friend runs this festival. I'm going to take you there to play. Like, drove me there in his old battered car. Um, I played that festival. Then he took me to High Peak Radio and started trying to push me out on all different kind of areas. And that was the first kind of, he, he saw what I was doing and he wanted to just spread it around. He died, unfortunately, about seven years ago but he was a real sort of huge part of my career and was it at that point that you thought oh this could be a job um for ages it was just for fun like yeah I mean I loved going I just loved the rush of it and I always have like it's not always getting an audience to be really loud most of the time it's getting an audience to be completely silent that is the one isn't it it's like mm. if you've got everyone's attention then you're just doing it right and I crafted I like learned that craft from the age of 12 to you know I think I was 20 when I auditioned for the show but in between that time I was playing shows everywhere I mean I went to America for three months just with my guitar and my backpack um I played gay days festival of course I did and then I just couch surfed the website I used that for three months. I did 32 states in three months, just playing my guitar and like going to some old lesbian bars and be like, can I play here? Will you feed me? And they would be like, yeah, sure. Come and stay in the flat above the restaurant or whatever. It was great. That's awesome. And really brave. So what were you like 18, 19 at that point? I was 18, yeah. (gasps) That is so brave. My mum was just like, go and do your thing. See you later. I was the youngest, so she was like, can't be asked. She'd go and do whatever you want. I went over my phone bill. I left roaming on in the first month I'd gone. I spent 130 quid, which was linked to her account. So she just cancelled it. In the first month, I was away. And that was it. After the second the second and third month, I, I just uh, was on my own. But was that, like, unbelievably freeing? It was incredible. I think every 18-year-old should be dropped into the middle of a massive airport in another country. (laughs) So they realise just how very small they are in this world. Did you have sort of queer friends before that? Yeah, I I came out when I was um, 14. So I've been playing at Manchester Pride since I was 15. Wow. And actually, it was at Manchester Pride, I was playing in some, like, little rubbish marquee tent in a car park. That's where I got scouted for gay days. Right. And this guy was like, do you want to come and play my festival in Florida? He was like, you have to pay to come out here and all that stuff, but do you want to play? And I was like, yep, see you there. And that's kind of the attitude that I've got. It's like, is there an opportunity? Yes, I'm going to take it. And and that's kind of wound me up to being, you know, when I was 20, I went on the X Factor. And so when you played that audition, which then became something that was watched like millions and millions of times on YouTube, um, were you kind of used to playing to a big crowd at that point? Um, Not like massive crowds, Mm. but like any crowd I could get my hands on. Um, I was a regular support at Dingwalls at that point, which isn't a big venue by any means, but they cram people in there. It's people that are very serious about music. 
Right. And I, and so I knew how to like work a crowd. I wasn't really phased by it. That is incredible to not be phased by that. I was nervous, but I wasn't. Do you know the reason? The reason I did that audition was because I figured, oh, there's three thousand people in this arena. Some of them might like my Facebook page. And that is for real. <gasps> the reason I did it. And I'm sure a few of them did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they did. It it totally uh, went a lot further than I ever anticipated it would. And did you enjoy the process of it? No. Right. Like, you do TV, so you know how contrived television can be. I think a lot has changed from back in the day. When I was on the show, how hard and how horribly they worked you. You didn't own anything. None of your time. It was very hard work, basically. Yeah. And then you, I mean, you got through to boot camp, which was like the big thing to do. And then you had to leave... Was it in the fourth week? Yeah, it was, yeah. Because of illness. And then yeah. were you devastated to have to leave or were you like, no, everything happens for a reason, I'll be okay here? Yeah, I I was a bit devastated. I was very devastated. But I think I've always been... I think I knew my time on there was up. And what you wanted to do was write your own stuff and perform your own stuff and not just do versions of other people's songs, right? Yeah, and... I'm not very good at that, or at least I wasn't then. And that's not ever what I wanted to do. So I guess when you look at people who do well from reality TV, everybody's a bit fucked up. That ethic that they have where they work you like a horse and until your back's broken and you can't carry anything anymore. So they just drop you or shoot the horse in the head. Yeah. It, it, I don't like that. And I never wanted that. So I didn't even sign to Psycho when when I left the show. I signed to Columbia. Even at that young age, you sort of knew that you wanted stuff on your own terms, which I think is massively impressive. Oh, there were contracts that I refused to sign. Um, I think it was uh, 50%. I can't remember for the life of me, but there was a merch thing. And it was right. like, you have to give up this. And I was like, no way, I'm not signing that. And they were like, well, you have to sign it to go through. And I'd done my audition by this point. It already, like, you know, I knew how it went. So I was just like, no. You're going to, you know that you they're going to use that telly. Well, yeah, I, did, I did. I did. So there were a few contracts that I was just like, no, no, thank you. And and I, I, I didn't. And I watched other contestants sign them. Because that's the thing with shows like The X Factor of like, you know, I can't really liken it to anything because as a stand-up, you know, you do loads of comedy and then you might get your first little go on telly, which for me was probably about six years ago where I was absolutely mediocre. And then you get another little go at telly and then you slowly become someone that people, like now people look at me and, you know, they're sort of thinking, is she a bit famous or did she go to my school? <laughs> like that's the level of fame I have. But for you, it was like, oh, that's it. You're in the tabloids. Yeah, that um, that is is a phenomenon that isn't talked about enough. Uh, like the implications that has on people's mental health. I used to sell things in the street. So I sold baby photos. Like I sold like yeah. baby photo packages. So mm-hmm. I had, a, I, I was invisible Monday to Thursday. People would actively like di- divert from me. Oh, she's got a clipboard. Get out the way. And yeah. then the next day, tried going to work and got like like mobbed. My next door neighbor's kids were in my garden. Like, hi Lucy, and I was like, uh, what? That must have been insane. It was, and I was very young, and it and for a long time I was such a dick <laughs> because I just didn't know how to deal with it. 
But I think that's, I don't think that's you being a dick. I think that's you being like 20. I mean, yeah. I don't think you can give yourself too much of a hard time about that because I don't know how anyone would deal with that sort of insane media intrusion and, and tension that when you're just sort of going, well, I just wanted to play some music and wanted, yeah. the, and wanted a few more fans on Facebook. Yeah. You know when like Justin Bieber was crashing Ferraris and spinning yeah. people, I was a bit like, well, you know, he is Justin Bieber and he is about 12 and has been for like the last nine years. So it's a weird, it's a weird process. Yeah. It must be really weird. And it must be really difficult for your mental health with regards to, oh my God, you're this amazing thing and you've got through to this thing and oh my God, it's amazing. And then, oh, this has stopped. No, people are going to say, like with those shows, part of what the show is, is people also saying negative things about you, oh, yeah. which is then like, oh, great. That's on telly on Saturday night. Yeah. I like can remember some of the things that were said about me. Um, and a, a journalist called Michael Hogan reviewed my first album and called me a badly eyebrowed busker. And, that, and, and like the shit that I remember is so irrelevant mm-hmm. to, to anything that, yeah. that should have been said about a 20 year old like doing their thing and and it that was hard yeah totally it's weird isn't it how like I've got lots of lovely reviews but it's those little lines here and there that where people just want to take a jab at you that, that stick in your head <laughs> yeah oh 100% and pe- it's so easy for people to say well why don't you just think about the good things and I just want to be like why don't you shut the fuck up like <laughs> you don't know what it's like so there it, it's really tough to compartmentalize that stuff I think I still get that like every single day though like people just being horrible for no reason as in online yeah yeah every day I know I get a bit of it when I'm on telly sometimes or when someone just wants to be a dick and quite often it's homophobic for me have you thought about like have you thought like you can't I guess in some ways you can't come off social media because it's a massive part of how you make your living right it's the biggest part of my my like music and my social life are so closely like intrinsically linked that people yeah it's kind of the reason why people buy the record is because it goes along with the narrative of yeah it's like a very new way of looking at music, really. And it's because people feel like they know you. I think that's the thing, you know, me saying about how funny your Instagram account is. It's really great because I feel like that's why I think as soon as we got on the chat today, we started laughing because I feel like I know you because you're so open and honest about yourself. Well, that that's what I want. But then when you are open, you're like effectively like this this open wound that people can just sort of stick stick anything Mm. in and you're like ow that really hurts but you know I'm still a person yeah you can't become a scar because there's constant and and I don't want to I had this conversation online the other day because it pisses me off just as much people saying you need to be less sensitive and I'm the other day I had a bit of an epiphany and I was like fuck you I don't need to be any less sensitive I am fundamentally a very sensitive person and that's why I'm in the arts. That's yeah. why I care about people. That's why I care about politics and health and I don't need to be less sensitive. That's just a stupid thing. Yeah, you need to be kinder. Yeah, exactly. Stop being pricks. <laughs> that's yeah, it. No, I, yeah, I totally, yeah, I've totally experienced it. I'm, I'm, I'm really soft as well. I think we should stop being a culture of people that say harden up and instead yeah. embrace the fact that, you know, there are empaths and nice people in the world. Yeah. Stop telling us to become not like that. 
any music or film or art or TV or anything that anyone's ever loved has come from someone feeling something. Exactly. So what, do you want us to all numb ourselves so we can't feel a thing and then what, you get no creativity? Yes. And know, yeah, they won't be laughing anymore after that, you know? Like, no. you can take away all the sensitive sensitivity, you lose all the art. So when you, you signed to Columbia Records, which I'm guessing was a pretty big deal. Yeah. And then you just got straight on to touring. I just was Just like, non-stop, right? This is what I know. The record label was shit. And so, like, my first album was, well, it was technically my second album, was number seven. So, like, top ten. Yeah. Sold, sold a lot of copies. I think it went silver or something. And they're like, oh, yeah, not enough. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, okay. I was really proud of that. But for Sony, I guess they just stopped being interested. So I was like, right, I'm going to do what I know. And so I got an agent and just went touring and started tiny. Like I started in, went, came off the X Factor. They invited me on the X Factor tour for 500 quid a night playing in arenas. I was like, no. <laughs> um, and so we did small, yeah, really small, 150 to 200 cap venues, just up and down and up and down and up and down the UK. And did you have like a massive lesbian following? Yeah, it was great. Yeah, because I I feel like, you know, the gays are very good or the LGBTQIA gang are very good with like, if you put something out there, by God, they will support you. (laughs) I talk about this in my book. Like I'm writing a book at the moment. Yeah, I read that. And I talk about... Not your book, I read that you're writing one, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, I've not hacked your computer or anything. So I'm <laughs> well, I hope not. <laughs> um, it's not done. But I talk about this and how people will often. I'm like my name. The name Lucy Spragan is synonymous with two things, and that's the X Factor and being a lesbian. Mm-hmm. And the latter is because not because I'm a lesbian. It's because the LGBTQA community will see somebody one of us we're like oh go on go on yeah yeah come on and and lesbians especially we are so underrepresented yes in on television in music like and and so when we see it we're, we're here for it yeah absolutely it's not really like that anymore but it was just the sea of um you know flannel shirts flannel shirted beanie hat <laughs> wearing lesbians for a long time um and so when heterosexual people started attending my shows you'd see like the kind of rows like there'd be like maybe seven rows of lesbians and then behind that was like parents and children and then at the back yeah. there'd be like 40-year-old men with beards just standing against the back wall going, where the fuck am I? (laughs) No, the lesbians being like, who are these new guys that have come to the show? Honestly, there was was definitely a a big sort of rift. There was like a, oh, they didn't really know what was going on. But now it's about 50-50, I'd say. That's great, though, because it's important to feel like your music is, is reaching people that aren't exactly like you because then they hear about what it's like to be you. It's something different, you know? Yeah, definitely. And so you've taught, you've been really open in both your music and in interviews about sort of dealing with anxiety or depression. And I wanted to know, like, is it important that you share stuff like that in your music, that people get like a full picture of you? I'm, well, definitely. It's, it's just something that I've always, my reason for writing music, it was never like, I'm going to write these songs and make them big or whatever, or have a load of people listen to them. 
my reason is like whenever somebody tells me they're sad or whatever I'm like what do you do with those emotions if you don't write songs like what the hell it's my diary really so yeah I've struggled with mental my mental health and I have issues with anxiety social anxiety and at one point there was you know suicidal issues going on with me and if I didn't write about them I'm not sure where they would have gone I'm imagining that like a lot of your audience that's part of the reason why they connect so deeply to you and are so supportive of sort of your career and follow you around because I don't know it's quite refreshing to see someone be you know like you get pop stars and musicians and people being quite open but I think like certainly when it comes to like the newer music that you're putting out now like especially sober like that video to that song is like such an obtrusive close-up that is it's really you like there's nothing no bells and whistles just you exactly as you are that's always kind of what I tried to be but there's always been an element of me that is has held it back Mm -hmm. I think with this record I've changed a lot in the last year I've sort of like completely changed my life I'm 16 months sober and I've Mm -hmm. been a big drinker my whole life and I've had grand ideas and and then I wake up and I'm too hungover to chase them and now I'm like very unforgivingly um, me and that's what this record is gonna show really and I'm guessing like the booze was like tied up with that anxiety like oh my that must that that couldn't have helped I, I would say it's most of the reason for it I I've never felt this mentally clear like there's a clarity that is offered to me that I just never I never knew existed and I wish I wish that the reason I talk so much about sobriety and the effect it had on me is because I've been drinking since I was like 12 or 13 Mm -hmm. and I wish I could have looked at somebody and saw kind of what has happened to me and thought oh maybe maybe I've got a bit of a problem with alcohol because it's about what you're looking at like the, our culture it's so easy to just watch you know what's the what's the one the Geordie Shore where they're like getting so pissed they're throwing up and we're all like ha 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 you know they're going home and they're not and waking up and not remembering remembering the end of their night and that's comedy for us yeah but it's it's also a like cultural structure and I I want people to know there's a different choice there's another choice and that's the choice that I made last year was there a moment when you just thought, I've got to give up this booze? Yes. Was there a specific moment? <laughs> I'd been touring for 13 months and I was married. Wow, that is a lot. Yeah, I, w- I was like, so like, I was going UK, Europe, America, UK, Europe, America. And I was married and I had this home, uh, this home life. And then I had my actual life, which was my life on tour. It was like a railway track and they ran parallel to each other. And I would visit home for a few days or a week and then I was gone again and I was trying to pretend that I was you know not pretend I was invested in this home life but if you're not there that's not actually your life no and so that was slowly dissipating and I was you know trying to I have this thing of like if something's not quite working I'll just destroy it well I used to and I'll, I'll I'll make it implode rather than having a conversation about it. I'll just throw a grenade in there and run away. So I was doing that and I was drinking probably every night. 
And I came home and got absolutely smashed with some friends and my ex-wife and all of her friends. And there was massive drama. Um, and I woke up the next day and I was like, you know what? I'm never doing this again. And that was 16 months ago. And and, and was it hard? Yeah, it was. And like the first month and a half, like my skin hurt. And I was crying every day because when you stop drinking in this country you like drink when you have a birthday you drink when someone dies you you drink when you graduate you don't ever stop to say how do I feel about that and so that was the first time I like something made me sad like my divorce and I was like oh my god sadness is horrendous mm-hmm. and so it was tough it was really tough and you didn't have the the booze to numb it I suppose exactly and like I would find myself, you know, see, watch something on the TV or hear a song that would make me sad, and my instinct would be like, "Right, go and get a pint," and you mm. got to shed that. And for a while, I was like, "You feel really sad? Go and find some cake." <laughs> and I had to, I had to lose that as well. But it's, um, it, it is massive quitting drinking, really. Our culture is so tied up in booze. You're absolutely right. Like it's, it's everywhere. It's, it's happy. It's sad. It's indifferent. It's a pint in the afternoon. It's because it's sunny. Yeah. You know, what we can always find a reason for it. Our industry is built on it as well. You know, like, yeah. you know, when you don't make money, it's like beer tokens, isn't it? Yeah, it so is. Yeah, you get paid. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah, if you're doing, you get a couple of, you get paid and then you get like two, two beers after the show as well. <laughs> or there's a fridge with booze in. Yeah, exactly. And I can imagine it's even more so in music. It's very easy. I can imagine. But it sounds like you're in such a brighter place now. Oh, yeah. All because of CrossFit. No, not because of CrossFit. <laughs> but just because I had to learn how to really just grow up a bit. I think mm-hmm. maturity happens for people at all different st- stages and it looks like different things. And for me, it was, okay, you need to learn how to manage your emotions and regulate your anger and really just learn who the fuck you are because you have no idea and stopping you know lockdown that's helped yeah and I guess if you've if you've used booze for such a long time as sort of you know whenever wherever you must have been feeling some emotions for like the first time of being like oh that that's how this really feels it was like being punched in the face repeatedly every single day for the first six weeks Okay, so that's a, that does sound tough. I'm going to be honest, that sounds awful. <laughs> Emotionally punched in the face. Right. Oh, it was just so hard. And um, things will pop into your head that you just can't ignore. But coming through that, I would. I don't think I'll ever return, ever return to drinking. Or any substances, to be honest with you. Because my kind of rule in life now is, does it bring me joy? Yes, it stays. Does it bring me joy? No, it goes. And that's it. I mean, that's a great way to live. And have you found it's helped you creatively? A hundred percent. I've always been like, here's my grand ideas. Take them and and I'm going to build an empire. And then I'll just be like, I can't really be asked to do that now. And now I'm like spinning a million different plates at once. And I'm just so productive. Have you seen the film Limitless with Bradley Cooper where he takes those little... um, yes. That's how I feel about sobriety. I feel like I had those little tablets. I like learnt to play the piano. I can play oh, wow. in like Pachelbel's can and shit like that. And, <laughs> and that's because I just sat down. Instead of having a beer, I just played piano and things like that. I mean, that's brilliant. 
I'm just really passionate about being alive now. And I never really gave a shit before about really... I know it sounds very depressing, but just being alive. You know, if you can get so pissed that you, like, have your stomach pumped or you can get so pissed that somebody has to put you to bed and you don't remember it, you actually don't give a shit whether you're alive or not. And that's a kind of dark thing to realise, but a lot of people do it. Mm-hmm. Like, if you rely on a taxi driver you don't know to get you home, God, that's yeah, dark. Yeah, that, that's a dangerous place to be in, isn't it? So dark, yeah. You've got no regard for yourself. And that's what I realised. I'm, I'm going to move to the, the final question of the show. It's been such a joy to talk to you. Well, thank you for having me on. I, I, I have to say, big fangirl moment when you, uh, when you sent me a message. When you said that, and I was like... Fucking hell, that's cool. Um, but let's uh, let's go and have like an elderflower at some point. Oh, an elderflower! Yeah, come on. I'm all, I'm all about the non non alcoholics. Fine. I don't want to give you anything that would stop those washboard abs. Um, but I always ask the same question at the end of the show, and it's it, basically it's normally about like what would you tell your young self about coming out, about sort of how your life's improved by you sort of holding on to who you are but I'm going to change it for this interview because I feel like you've always been very comfortable it seems that you've always been very comfortable with your sexuality and been quite comfortable with being like a bit of a lesbian role model and you know you've obviously had like such a supportive um, mum and sort of family to come out to so instead I'm going to change it this week and I'm going to ask like what advice would you give yourself from only like 16 months ago, say, before you gave up the booze, when you were still like numbing everything with it, what advice would you give to that girl then about, you know, what's to come? I would say, well, I would be like, I wish you could see into the future. And if you put as much hard work in as I know you can, then you're going to be finally happy. And like, not materially happy, like, happy, happy to wake up. But it's the same advice that I'd give to a- a- anyone really who is kind of s- sad very often and somebody who needs something to take away that sadness like I did. And it's not always alcohol for people. It's like food, relationships, things that they have trouble moderating. My advice would be like, my train just arrived. I didn't anticipate it I had no idea it was even coming I was like standing on a platform with no idea what was where the train was going to or even that train was coming and then all of a sudden I was just on this train and that train was heading to a better life and so my advice to people is like don't push yourself and don't run looking for this new way of life because I'm almost certain it's going to arrive for you oh mate that's perfect What a brilliant way to end the uh, interview. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. That was Lucy Spraggan. I fell in love with her. I'm sure you did too. Um, If you want to get in touch, please do. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com and I will be with you next week. Take care. Bye-bye.